0: This is the Bates Bobcast, our weekly podcast where we take a look at the week that was in Bates Athletics. My name is Aaron Morse, and for the summer months on the Bobcast, we are taking a trip down memory lane with student-athletes from the past. This week, we chat with perhaps the greatest pitcher in Bates baseball history, former New York Yankee farmhand and Maine Baseball Hall of Famer Tom Freeman from the class of 1963. That's coming up on the Bates Bobcast. You can find Tom Freeman all over the Bates baseball record book. He pitched 18 complete games in three seasons and struck out 181 batters. Both are program records to this day. In 1962, Freeman was the winning pitcher in seven of the Bobcats' 12 victories, leading Bates to the Maine State Series title and the Eastern NCAA Finals. And in 1963, he was named a second-team All-American in the college division by the American Association of College Baseball Coaches. Standing at 6'6", six six, or 6'7", six depending on who you ask, Freeman also starred on the basketball court, helping Bates advance to the NCAA Regional Finals in 1961. Freeman graduated with a degree in psychology and a career-earned run average of 2.47. He then signed with the New York Yankees and played four seasons in their farm system. As a Yankee minor leaguer, Freeman learned from the great Whitey Ford, and his height was even the subject of a Yogi Berra quote. The Hall of Fame catcher-turned-Yankee manager was quoted in the sporting news as saying, These are the tallest kids I've ever seen in our camps. Good thing we don't pay rookies by the inch. Freeman went on to have a long career at IBM, and in 2016, he was inducted into the main Baseball Hall of Fame. Today, he joins the Bobcast to reflect on his time at Bates, including his close relationship with the famed Bates head coach, William Chick-Lahey.
1: I applied to four different colleges, and uh, uh, two were in the Boston area where I grew up, and I felt like I wanted to get away from home. Bowdoin did not accept me. Uh, which made it all the more uh, fun to beat them on, on, on the playing fields. <laughs> but uh, Bates uh, thankfully did accept me and uh, uh, actually a friend of my mom's was a uh, cousin of Milt Lindholm, which didn't hurt. And uh, my next door neighbor had gone to Bates and graduated in 1955 and had good things to say.
0: Certainly, and then you played basketball and baseball there at Bates. Um, we'll start with your—actually, before we get to Chick Leahy, who I know had a big impact. I know you played under uh, Bob Peck for basketball and had a lot of success there also. Um, what was Coach Peck like? about your sophomore year, basketball-wise, because I I know the team that season went to the NCAA Regional Finals. It was kind of the first postseason appearance ever in Bates basketball history there in in 1961.
1: Well, we had a a real good team. And basically, we had a a center named Jim Sutherland who was probably the best rebounder in New England and uh, scored well for us. And I started my sophomore year, and we got nominated for the tournament and uh interesting little war story is that our first game was against springfield and we had played springfield during the regular season and beat them and so uh prior to the tournament uh the coach for springfield was quoted in the newspaper as saying the reason they lost to us during the season was due to poor scouting (laughs) so needless to say That was good bulletin board fodder for us. Uh, If we didn't need to get psyched up, that would have done it. And uh, so we ended up beating them again in the tournament. And and we lost uh, the final to Williams College by about, I think, six or seven points. So they had a very good team. And maybe you already know this, but uh, when Williams went to the next level to play the final eight, it was in Evansville, Indiana and the shenanigans and the crowds and so forth were so awful that they came back and they convinced what became NESCAC teams not to participate in uh, NCAA tournaments. That did, I don't think that changed until my son was at Williams and they went to two, two tournaments. And that was in the early 90s. So for all those years NESCAC teams did not participate in NCAA tournaments. And of course when we were there, of course, there was, no, there was no CBB, there was no NESCAC, it was the Maine State Series. It was four teams, the three little schools and the University of Maine in Orono. So uh, that was it. The, the, as far as basketball, I learned a lesson my freshman year uh, to pay attention to my books because I was declared ineligible my second semester. So I couldn't play basketball uh, or baseball my freshman year, second semester. So that's the reason I only played three years of uh, baseball at Bates. and uh, But it was a, a lesson well learned,
0: and uh, I came back and succeeded in graduating. I did talk to one of your contemporaries uh, a while back, uh, Howie Vandersee, and he mentioned that, you know, I mean, obviously Bates has always been very you know academically oriented, but in particular in that time, I mean, yeah. sports were an afterthought, I mean, in terms of the campus and whatnot, what was it like, you know, how do you make those adjustments in the classroom uh, when you kind of got that wake-up call, I guess, right? Like a lot of students, I think, I learned everything in class, and I really didn't know how to study back in the room. So uh, I had to learn how to do that,
1: and uh, that was the basic issue. And In fact, uh, when I finally had grades good enough to have uh, cuts, I don't know today whether everybody has cuts or what, but back then you had to have a certain grade average to have any kind of cuts to cut class. Well, by the time I got to that level, <laughs> I was so afraid to take cuts that I never took any anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid I'd miss out, miss out on something that I needed to know. And, uh, so that's, uh, But school was a lot different then. I mean, you, maybe you've already heard all these things, but... We had to go to chapel every week. There were Saturday morning classes uh, because you met you met uh, three times a week. So that required uh, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday classes to meet on Saturday morning. We had five courses, not four. So things maybe it's maybe it's a retrospect, but things were a little more disciplined and and strict and tougher, I thought. Anyway, the dining room was more like the army barracks I went through in basic training. Mm-hmm. Uh, today it's like a gourmet restaurant <laughs> that's all you can eat <laughs> hey, we went through the line you got what you got was what you got and that was it without coming back for more <laughs> and uh, so those those things have changed drastically of course for the better
0: to the baseball side of things chick Leahy obviously I mean I've read Quotes from you talk about how what a you know great coach he was, an inspirational coach, and I've talked to his wife uh, Ruth a few times as um, about Chick. But um, what are some Chick Leahy stories that really kind of embody what kind of man he was?
1: You know, he was just a tremendous person, not only because he was a coach that an excellent coach, and uh, but just his personality and his his way, way of uh, teaching and coaching and the respect he had for the opponent. He wanted to win more than anyone, but it was in a respectful way. And uh, we had some great rivalries, uh, especially with Colby and uh, their coach, John Winken, who was a very well-known coach. And uh, we remained uh, lifelong friends and uh, never went to Lewiston without stopping by to see him. And Ruth, and uh, we knew all the kids, and so uh, we have great memories. And uh, I think one of the best stories I have regarding on the field, uh, an on the field event, was during a game at Bates. We had a we had a play at the plate. The opposing runner was called safe, and uh, I can't even remember the the issue that. That was being argued but chick came off the bench and that he he really got into it with the home plate umpire whose name was bill donovan a well-known local guy who had um, umpired for years and uh they kept going at it and i walked off the mounds towards halfway to the plate and just, i could hear what was going on and uh, eventually bill lost it and uh out of yelling at chick he says, chick you don't know anything about baseball you don't know the rules so chick that was the wrong thing to say to chick so chick gets in his face and says bill he says i've forgotten more about baseball than you'll ever know <laughs> and walked back to the bench <laughs> <laughs> uh i thought that was a that was a great uh retort and uh I, I had to hide my laugh because, <laughs> because it didn't change the uh, decision any. Uh, another little story was that uh, after my first year professionally, uh, it was a half season, I came back in the fall debates and uh, went in to see Chick in his office just to say hello and talk about my experience that, that past summer. And uh, we must have talked for half an hour. And... I was about to get, I was just getting up to leave, and Chick said, oh, Tom, Tom, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) So he opened the drawer to his desk, and he took out the certificate, and he says, oh, I've I've had this all summer long. He says, it's your All-American certificate. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when when you're named an All-American, you get this big certificate, and, uh, so he gave it to me. I thought that was really funny because I didn't. That's the first time I ever found out that I had been named an All-American. Uh, no one ever wrote me a letter, and no one ever said anything. <laughs> so I walked out of his office on cloud nine and uh, laughed laughed down the walkway. And the interesting thing was that John Winkin, the coach for Colby, was on the committee, the selection committee, and he he's signed the certificate, he was one of the three signatures on the certificate. So anyway, um, and, and Chick said later, he said, you know, John, John was, uh, uh, he spoke up for you and uh, was, a, was one of the people who were really responsible for you being nominated. So uh, I thought that was nice, because he was such an enemy of ours, <laughs> <laughs> right?
0: but uh, it was just a great, great relationship. And it was. I can say
1: that was. I don't know of any player that played for him that didn't feel the same way. And uh, so that's
0: that's that. Your junior year in baseball, you got to compete um, in the you know NCAA's there. Fairly Dickinson, I understand there was some uh, words exchanged with Fairly Dickinson. <laughs> Tell us about that kind of background because I I read oh, yeah. about what they were calling oh, you guys and everything.
1: We went down by bus we stayed in one of their dormitories, and, uh, the first game was against Fielding Dickinson. It was a pretty big school. I think there were, like, 10,000 students there. So, I don't know how they got classified as a college division, but, uh, which, by the way, when we played, there were only two divisions. They didn't have one, two, and three. Right. It was college division and university division. So, anyway, um, so we get out on the field to do our warm-ups and, uh, so forth, and, uh, the bench for Philly Dickens was really ragging on us, you know. And they was, you know, they said things like, you know, you guys, you guys are hicks from Maine and, you know, you don't, we play St. John's and we play Villanova and we play this, that, and the other. (laughs) You know, you can't compete with us and, uh, you know, all this kind of crap. (laughs) So we didn't, we didn't say anything. We just played ball. And, uh, of course, the ironic part of it is, uh, I, I think out of those, starting nine that we had seven of us were from massachusetts so and i don't know if i don't think anyone was from maine there was a guy from connecticut and a, i don't know where the other guy was from so if they had looked at the program they might have known that we weren't from maine even though we represented a maine school <laughs> but uh so it was very uh satisfying to beat them two to one and uh, the field was, wasn't was very good for a big school like that, and uh, the outfield fence ran almost straight across the outfield instead of having an arc to it. As a result, center field was only about 300 feet, 310 feet, and the, the score, we, we won two to one, and the only scoring was done on home runs. So they hit a, they hit a solo home run off me, I think in the third or fourth inning, and then Ron Taylor, uh, our left fielder, hit a two-run homer off off them. And that's the way the game ended. And uh, But, you know, if, if I had a normal field, who knows how long the game would have run. So uh, uh,
0: that's the way it goes. At the time, did you realize how significant it was for, you know, baits, not only baseball but also basketball to have – you know, made NCAAs like that? Or was was the history kind of not something you were aware of at the time or anything like that? I don't
1: think anyone before me or I don't know if anyone after me has played basketball and baseball and, and gone to the NCAAs in both sports. But my son, my youngest son, was the captain on the Williams basketball team, graduated in 95, and they used to play Bates. And uh, I came up to see him play in Lewiston. It was the junior year. And
0: uh, saw some old fans that used to come to see me play. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, fortunately, I think he scored twenty points, so he had a good night. <laughs> but anyway,
1: yeah, it, it was satisfying to go to those three tournaments. And uh, in, in both cases, we didn't have any idea we were going to be picked. You know, it just came as a total surprise. I mean, there was no there was no big uh, nominating night or anything. It was. Decisions were made in probably small little offices somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the funny story about the Springfield tournament basketball was that we had a big contention of fans go down to the game. One of the fans was was lived in my dorm. His good friend still is. He had a bobcat that was mounted on a wooden plaque, like uh, standing up on a wooden base. It was a it was an lo- actual stuffed bobcat, and he used to take that to all the games and sit in the stands and hold it up and so forth. Well when the Springfield fans saw that it got pretty testy and they, there was some there was some fisticuffs in the stands. They were trying to steal the bobcat away from us. <laughs> and uh we had a bunch of football players that were guarding it so it they didn't get it away. But and of course we were playing the game, we didn't know what was going on until afterwards. <laughs> but uh, those were some funny events. That and the, uh, about pranks, uh, one of my classmates uh, used to lead uh, on at least two occasions during the four years he was at Bates. He and a buddy of his would go down to Bowdoin and they'd paint, they'd paint the polar bear in front of the gym. You know, they had a big, huge cement polar bear that uh, they'd go down there and paint it some color, I don't know, maroon or and, uh, He'd have to. his father would have to fork over the money to have it sandblasted and cleaned up. <laughs> uh, there were always a few pranks. Like, you probably heard about the fact that they put a Volkswagen inside the lobby of Quorum Library one night.
0: How do you pull that off?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it wasn't just turning it on its side to get it in the door, but to do it without getting caught by the night watchman. <laughs> it must have had a key to get in. <laughs> the other prank that I remember particularly was during chapel one morning uh, somebody had gotten into the chapel the night before and they rigged up this wire that ran the whole length of the the middle aisle down to the front of the church, of the chapel and at a designated time a little electric motor carried a lady's underwear on that wire all the way down to the middle aisle <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh seemed funny at the time. In Chapel, that probably didn't go over very well with the folks uh, running Chapel. Uh, I don't think they caught the person. I was curious about your teammates. Um yeah, you know, I know you play with Howie Vandersee in, in baseball. Uh what was, what was he like to play with? I mean, obviously he's he's known a lot for his football accomplishments, but obviously also played baseball there with you. Well, Howie
1: was was tremendous. He was was on the football field and he was a he was when he hit the when he got a hold of one, you know, it went out forever. And uh, you don't you don't remember you wouldn't know what the old baseball field used to look like, but anyway he uh, he cleared the fence, uh, that had to be over four hundred feet one day. And uh, he was a first baseman, very athletic. I years and we've been friends for over 60 years and he lives just over the line in Rhode Island so we get together all the time as I said we had two good years uh, 62
0: and 63 so I was wondering about your professional career in baseball pitching in the Yankees organization Chick had played in the Yankees organization also did did you go to him for any advice or anything when you signed with the Yankees because he played in their organization as well back in the day
1: Oh, Chick played after he got out of the service, yeah. after World War II. So it, it was the late 40s when he was playing, and, uh, but he knew, he knew the scouts, and, uh, I think he was, he was instrumental in making sure that, uh, the Yankee scout got up to see, see a couple of games, and, uh, you know, there were about eight teams that were, were looking at me, and, uh, uh three or four of them made serious offers, uh, money, and, uh. But I was most disappointed in the Red Sox because the scout that had been pretty hot on my trail during my junior year, he died that winter, and they kind of dropped the ball. Whoever took over either didn't want to drive to Maine or <laughs> wasn't wasn't excited enough about what he read, so that, that was kind of disappointing because I would have loved to sign with the Red Sox. But the Yankees were a first-class organization, and when I saw the way some other organizations treated the Amaya League systems, uh, I'm glad I, I... I was glad that I made the choice I did. So, you know, basically, just glad I gave it a try because if I hadn't, I would have always wondered whether I would have gone all the way. But uh, when I left, it was time and uh, to get a real job. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have to give a lot of credit to my wife, uh, Claire, who uh, put up with... I think we counted one time that between the t- between the day I graduated from Bates and the day I hired with IBM, we lived in 13 different places. And uh, we were like vagabonds. <laughs> and then we had our first child the last year I played, and uh, it was time to move on. I didn't look like I was gonna make it to Yankee Stadium, so that's what happened. And uh, actually my wife's, my wife's father, uh, was a, a night watchman at Bates, a Konomi. We used to call him, but he was more than that. He was a great guy. And uh, he, he went to work, actually, after I met Claire. And uh, he uh, he was well-known on campus. All the students loved him. And uh, they used to call him Mr. B. And if you talk to, an alum, if you, if you talk to any alumni uh, who graduated in the 60s and 70s, they'll know who Mr. B is and uh, so uh, you know we have we kind of have a a Bates uh, history and my wife growing up in Lewiston so uh, that's my little
0: story about that I was wondering how the minor league baseball experience compared to the college baseball experience for you just kind of you know everyday life and whatnot.
1: Well, on the field it's it's another level it's uh, I mean everyone that signed had to have perceived to have ability to to justify you know being signed and maybe given some money and uh, so the level of competition was certainly better than college uh, although I suppose nowadays in division one baseball you probably got some teams that could compete in the minor leagues at maybe at the lower levels but you know all the pitches threw hard and the batters had uh, good swings and, uh, but only only a few players make it and uh, I did have the pleasure of playing with a few guys that did make it in the Yankee system and uh, against a few players that made it for other teams and uh, that was kind of interesting. I played with Bobby Mercer and Fritz Peterson and Mel Stottlemyre and I played against Rod Carew and I uh, couple of other guys I can't remember right now but who made it to the Hall of Fame so uh, they, it does happen but its a, I said it was a vagabond's life. One year uh, after we got married uh, my wife met me at the team that I was assigned to after spring training which happened to be Greensboro North Carolina in the Carolina League and uh, so I picked her up at the airport and dropped her off at an apartment I had rented and uh, filled with food and uh, <laughs> and I uh, left for the ballpark and uh, I said I'll see you maybe around 9 or 10 so I came back around 9 or 10 and said honey don't 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 unpack
0: <laughs> I've just been sent to, to Binghamton, New York, oh. and the New York so the next morning we packed up the car and drove to Binghamton, New York, <laughs> and
1: uh, fortunately, the landlady bought all our food, which was very nice of her. And uh, those are the kind of the stories you remember. Uh, another funny story is uh, uh, one night in Binghamton, you, we always came out to start warming up around uh, four thirty-five o'clock for a seven o'clock game, and uh, usually there was only like four or five hundred. People in the stands. And this night, as, as time went on, the stands started filling up and filling up and filling up until they were full. There was an empty seat. There must have been 1,500 people there. So I went along, the, I went to the someone in the box row seats who came to every game, and we all knew him. And I said, uh, Hey, he said, what's going on tonight? You know, the place is full. <laughs> and he said, "Oh, this is IBM night." Oh, well, I didn't. At that point, I didn't know IBM from ABC, <laughs> so uh, I didn't know that I'd be working for them a couple of years later. But uh, at one one night of, a year, they would buy out the the park and give the seats to their employees. Uh, their headquarters was uh, in the Tri City area there, and uh, so uh, <laughs> that was the the biggest crowd we ever had all, all season long.
0: You pitched against Rod Carew? What was that like? You could tell he was destined to make it because he was just such
1: a good hitter as his as, as form and uh, what he tried to do. You know, going back to Bates itself, you know, we had some memorable professors and uh, to say nothing of Milton Lindholm, who was a, a legend, but uh, we had people like Dr. Taglieri Bowie, uh, an English professor, and, uh, and for, for, uh, Professor Bushman, who taught German, and he was a tremendous uh, basketball fan. And his son had played uh, there, as well as uh, uh, the debate coach. Uh, he was a big basketball fan too, and uh, they'd get up and they'd sit up in the balcony with Dean Boyce, who was the Dean of Men, and they were the most rabid fans. I mean, they were almost, if they were down in the stands, they'd have been thrown out. But <laughs> <laughs> Another story uh, for you is that um, during my senior year, during the spring, uh, most students were taking interviews with companies or schools or whatever. So one day, about two weeks before graduation, I get a call from Dr. Kendall, who was Professor of psychology and education, and he kind of ran the uh, he ran the process of interviews, of scheduling companies, and so forth. So he said uh, he said he left a note in my mailbox, and he said, "Could you please come and see me?" Uh, and he gave me a time. And so I went into his office and uh, I come in and sit down. And he said, uh, "How's it going?" A uh, little small talk, and then he said, uh, "You know, I've noticed that you haven't taken any interviews." with any companies or uh, schools. I said, do you have a, do you have a plan? Or what, what, what are you thinking about doing after graduation? And I said, yeah, I realize I haven't taken in any interviews with companies that you schedule, but I've, I've taken several interviews with companies involved in professional baseball. And my intention is to sign a contract and play ball. Well, he almost fell off his chair. <laughs> he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that somebody from baseball wasn't going to, you know, take a traditional route uh, after graduation. So uh, we didn't have much to say to each other after that. So I, I just said, "Thank you for your time." I said, I "Appreciate it," but I've got I've got my own uh, agenda here. <laughs> and uh, you know, between. Between my first half year, uh, of course the Vietnam War was going on, just starting. So when I got home in September, I said to my parents, I said, you know, I've got to do something about my military obligation if I expect to keep playing ball, because if I get drafted, forget it. So I joined the the, the, uh, the reserves, was off to basic training within two weeks, and uh, spent the next winter vacation at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, to do my basic training, and got out just in time to go to spring training in in Florida. And uh, so I had had six years in the reserves. So the year I was in Binghamton, uh, my mother kept calling me on the phone and saying, you know, I'm getting these letters from the Army saying you're not attending drills. And if you don't show up, we're going to reinstate you onto active duty, and you have to do three years. (laughs) So my mother's frantic, of course. And so I said, well, I said, why don't you contact, and I gave her the name of a man who had scouted me and was from Arlington originally and had been very helpful to us. So she got a hold of him. He got a hold of the New York front office in New York and told him what was going on. And they said, "Oh, gee, we overlooked sending a letter to the army for your deferment, you know, your occupational deferment during the summer, which, which alleviated you having to do drills. So, because they had forgotten to do it, you know, the army didn't know any different. So uh, they got to the army in time, and then I, I, I could just see myself being dragged off the mound some night by the, by the, the military police, <laughs> <laughs> but." Uh, Again, that's that's my war story for for army service. Fortunately, I never got activated to go to Vietnam, and uh, uh, which I'm thankful for. The other thing I mentioned, I, I I didn't mention, but when we're talking about dining in those days, it, there was no co-ed dining. It was uh, men's men's commons, and the, the the ladies had the the dining room in the dorm over there. Uh, except on Sunday. At noontime you could you could go over to the the women's dining hall and have uh ed dinings. <laughs> I don't want you getting too close.
0: Is that how you met your your wife then?
1: No, no i actually oh. I met her at a party locally and uh okay and through actually it was a funny story it, i th- I thank my teammate Monty Wilson because we had just come back from a trip road trip to Boston for two baseball games in the spring and uh, I was I was sitting in my my dorm room and Monty came in and he had been he had been out to this party it was on one of the lakes Trip Lake I think it was and so he said hey you're not doing anything why don't you come out to this party we're having fun and so forth and so on and I said geez you know I'm really tired I don't feel like it (laughs) so Eventually, he talked me into it, and uh, that's where I met Claire, and uh, we, and a couple of weeks later, we, we had a date, and the rest is history, as they say. That was like 57, 58 years ago,
0: and uh, that's how we met. Awesome. Uh, going back to your pitching a little bit, I was curious about, from a pitching perspective, because I haven't read anywhere, what were your, like, pitches. What what'd you throw out there on the mound? What made you, in your opinion, an effective pitcher there at Bates?
1: In terms of uh, delivery, uh, I was what was referred to as a sinker-slider pitcher. Fastball, with, which sank. And uh, slider. I didn't have a big breaking overhand curveball because of my delivery was three-quarters to sidearm. Uh-oh. So, you can't get that kind of a break when you're throwing from the side. So, my my slider and my fastball were the main, main two pitches, change-up once in a while. But at that level, you know, just keep throwing hard. Yeah. If you throw, if you throw a change-up, they might hit it. <laughs> and that's pretty much what I had my whole career. In my last two
0: years, I was mainly a relief pitcher, and uh, I was always more effective against right-handed batters. And... Uh, because of the sidearm delivery. In pro ball, you're a relief pitcher, right? Because it baits you. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Okay. No. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's like almost every time, every game was a complete game. And, yeah. Uh, I think I still hold four or five records, and we only had like twelve to fourteen games a year.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh,
1: I'm not sure if anyone will. The way they play these days, they just don't do complete games. <laughs> Even if even if the pitcher were capable, you know, it's, they're so worried about hurting their arms uh, that the, they only let
0: them throw so many pitches. I don't think Chick ever counted pitches. <laughs> right. <laughs> he just bases he his decision
1: on uh, how well you were doing and, you know, if you told him you were tired. But I never did. I never really got tired, but I'm sure I did. I just wouldn't admit it.
0: There was one game where you never even broke a sweat, right, because it was so cold? Is that? Oh, uh, you read that one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a
1: Tufts. Yeah. It seemed like we opened up every year at Tufts because uh, they, probably not, they probably wouldn't come up to Maine for the <laughs> first game. Um, but, yeah, we. I think I pitched nine innings and we went into shower and there was, wasn't even a, a circle of sweat under my arm. And it, it started snowing at the beginning of the game, and then eventually stopped. But uh, baseball at that time of year was miserable. I, I have to, I have to tell you, it was brutal. And as I said in my Hall of Fame remarks, you know, our southern trip was to Boston. <laughs> yeah. And all, all our, all our, uh, all our state series games were north of us, and. You know, we we never got out on the field hardly to practice. We were, everything was in the cage. Well, <laughs> I'll
0: leave it at that. Cold weather and, and not ideal for baseball. I mean, it, it sounds like though that like I mean it was really all about you know your teammates and 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 Chick in terms of what made it a good experience, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, the team, the, the camaraderie, of the team teammates that you played with, and uh, you know, uh, it was. Uh, having John Waller play both basketball and baseball with me mm. it was it was fun and uh, actually Howie played one year of basketball
0: okay. I think one year uh, but you know that's
1: tough three sports <laughs> it's tough enough playing two you know we knew soon, we know soon we got through the basketball season and we, we were in the cage the next day uh, you seem to know about Bob Peck but he became, he became the AD at Williams College. Right. He was there for many, many years. And when I took my youngest boy up t- t- to interview uh, at Williams, uh, the coach there, uh, a few days later, he ran into Peck. And he said, hey, he said, uh, I'm considering a, a player coming here who says that his father played for you at Bates. And so... Says, well, who was that? And he said, uh, his name's Matt Freeman. His, his dad's uh, name is Tom. And he said, oh no, no, oh, that can't be. That's impossible. He says, he's not old enough. He's not old enough to have a son <laughs> coming to Williams. <laughs> so he'd lost. He'd lost track of time. So
0: you, did you reconnect with him a bit when your son went to Williams? Then?
1: Oh yeah. When we go, I went up to most of the games up at, at, at Williamstown. The home games and uh, a lot of the away games, but uh, oh yeah, he was very cordial. In fact, during uh, graduation, uh, his first wife had died a few years before, and he had uh, remarried. And so they were in the process of selling his house and moving into hers. So he said, "Tom, he says, why don't you and your family come and stay in my house? I'm not I'm not living in it right now." And uh, it was wonderful. It was a big house, and so all, we all stayed there, and uh, so he was always very nice to me, and he was, he was very helpful to a lot of coaches, especially in football, like Webb and Russ Riley in basketball, and he gave them uh, assistant coaching positions at BU, and and uh, when he was there, he, Peck had, had gone to BU to be the AD there before he went out to Williamstown, and he uh, so he he was very instrumental in helping several coaches uh, that came out of Bates so Chick he never had an assistant coach when we were there. It was just he was they, they didn't have a budget for those kinds of things and the other subject about recruiting, everybody says, "Well did were you recruited?" <laughs> I said, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> no, there was no such thing as recruiting at Bates during those years I mean although I think I think Howie told me once that uh, Bob Hatch used to go out on uh, trips and uh, interview kids and, and give a, a talk about dates, so I, which I guess could be called recruiting. But no one ever contacted me once about baseball or basketball um, uh, during during that period. I, uh, I wasn't a superstar in either one uh, in high school I mean I did well but not not enough to create uh, people recruiting
0: me (laughs) how did you feel kind of Bates prepared you for the rest of your you know career going through life basically after graduation how do you feel Bates kind of prepared you for that
1: because I had a broader knowledge of, of a, a wide range of topics. Uh, you know, we had, we had a basic curriculum. We had to take, you know, the core, the core courses. And, uh, you know, you had to take religion, philosophy, um, English, uh, uh, psychology, uh, uh, what else? There was, I don't know, there were like, oh, cultural heritage for four semesters. Other schools would probably call it humanities, but it was, it was, uh, four semesters, your junior and senior year, and it was, uh, it was Western civilization from the Greeks up to to Freud. You know, it was uh, it was like a, a fire hose <laughs> of information about everything in history, and uh, you know that that exposed everyone to tremendous knowledge, and I think that's the reason uh, that the College Bowl team, I don't know if you remember or know that Bates holds the record for number of wins in the College Bowl, which was a program back in the, I think it was the 70s. It was a quiz show for for students, and each each school had four students on the, on each, on the panel, and they would ask questions sort of like Jeopardy, and Bates was undefeated. The, the most you could win was five, and then they retired you. <laughs> and uh, the first year they were on, it was in the late spring, and they won two in a row. And, and then the show went off the air for the summer. So when they brought them back in the fall, they uh, they started they started counting over again, and they won five in a row. And they retired them. It was it was really something to watch. Uh, little Old Bates College would. These guys that could answer anything. <laughs> so I, I, I guess that would be my answer. Uh, that it just gave you such a broad education. and uh, as Whereas if, if you had gone to a university and knew you were going to major in engineering or some other science and that's all you took, you would never be exposed to these kinds of things.
0: Next time on the Bates Bobcast... We'll interview another Bobcat from days gone by who made a huge impact at Bates. Find out who, next time on the Bates Bobcast. Bates! Bates! right till the end! Right till the end of every